This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This episode is part of a long series about the history of Christian fundamentalism. It will make a lot more sense if you go back and start at the beginning of season five. Oh, man. How's everybody doing? Okay. <laughs> this is the Truths Podcast. I'm Chris Starin. We'll just wait a few more minutes um, before... We get going. And the sound you're hearing is from a video chat I did last week with patrons of this show. And then I've, I've seen some mixed reviews about in his steps um, across the different platforms. Because over the last few weeks, I've been releasing the audiobook okay. version of In His Steps, this massively successful book from the late 1800s. We've been talking on the show about the history of fundamentalism. And fundamentalism was a reaction to this movement called the social gospel. A movement that is perfectly encapsulated in this fictional story. It was a big nebulous thing, but basically it emphasized doing good works and de-emphasized or even omitted the need for salvation through Jesus. It was a kind of liberal theology, and liberal theologies in the late 1800s and early 1900s were sweeping through seminaries, popular pulpits, and books like In His Steps. Rather than just you know do an episode about the book on the show, I thought we would read it together. You can find it on the feed just before this episode. That way we could get a feel for the social gospel for ourselves, and then discuss it. Patrons of the show were invited to join, and today I'm going to play the highlights from our talk. Now, if you want to hear the whole thing, all one and a half hours of it, you can sign up and become a patron yourself at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. But today, I want to play my favorite parts for you right here. Did everybody read or listen to the whole thing? Yes. 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 <laughs> that sounds pretty confident for most everybody. Well, I listened to part of it. I, I'll be honest. I had to skim a bunch of it because yeah. I don't know what everybody else thought. I didn't like that book at all. Oh, really? <laughs> uh-uh. That was going to be my first question. Is what, did you, <laughs> what did you think? Andy, what, what didn't you like about the book? I thought it was heavy-handed. I, I read a lot. I rarely read Christian fiction because it's the same story every time a bad person comes to Christ and never does bad again. They, okay. they never, they never, they become this overflowing fount of goodness flowing through the world until they get hit by a bottle from the top of the window or in this case. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just have so much trouble with that idea. Anybody else? I, I actually enjoy the book. So I'll, I'll go on record as saying that. Does anybody else have thoughts? I, I read a lot during the pandemic. I spent a lot of time in different sources, you being one of them, in American history during the Gilded Age. And I was, I was surprised because I expected, because it's a period piece, you know, it's 130 odd years old, right? And yeah, I agree with Andy that it sounds like something written 130 years ago <laughs> also, right? What I didn't expect was to hear things in it that 
once like once some of them made a commitment and said yes like real christianity is like real kingdom of god stuff is is you don't know exactly what you're really 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 saying <laughs> yes to in the end and that and that was the way their story is kind of carried through really you know and that they had to confront some things about themselves in a, in a very and their relationships with each other too yeah. you know and um and the way that related to not only those that were in their own households but people that they're in their own congregation where they actually developed relationships with each other that looked kind of like in my mind the way that fellowship literally should look like yeah in what way just sharing completely openly what's going on in my mind yeah. about my commitment we don't really talk that way to each other very often you know very rarely do we anyway right uh, confessional it was very confessional in the way that they talked and there was no there was no angle on making you agree with me about where I was going with my decision. And I didn't judge you if you disagreed with me and decided you wanted to do a different way or course of action in your life. And, um, and account of, but also accountability at the same time it was a very non-judgmental accountability. I thought, how does that happen? You know, it's such a, it's such an anomaly in Christianity to have a fellowship in it within a small body that you're associating with all the time at a high level to have that kind of a relationship with each other to where you can just, man, you're just, I, okay, I need to tell you what I got on my mind. I don't know. It, it just kind of surprised me that there was some elements in there that were there that I wasn't expecting to see because not, it wasn't all smelling good. It, it wasn't ending all neatly packaged necessarily. There was broken relationships. There were failures. There was death. I, I will say uh, there was at least one moment of judgmentalism <laughs> oh, yeah. where one oh, of the yeah. ladies confronts Jasper Chase about his lackadaisical lifestyle and yes. uh, just being a playboy. Yeah. Uh, and that eventually spurs him onto bettering his life and, and, and seeking some kind of higher purpose. Yeah. But there, that, that's the one moment I can think of where at least there was somebody called out for, for his actions. Well, Rachel, what did you think of the book? I loved it. I, I was surprised at, at how relevant it was, not to use a buzzword, but yeah. you know, it was interesting for me because my, um, I grew up reading art comics. And so you know, books, you know, basically all of the best, you know, selling Christian books of like the previous hundred years had been made into arch comics. And so I had only read the In His Steps arch comic, which of course they had moved it forward into like, you know, the countercultural, like hippie movement of the seventies or whatever. And you really could take the story and move it into, like Bruce said, it, it's very um, set in its, you know, gilded age, kind of Victorian wealthy um, setting, but you could move the story, I think, into any setting, which has got to be why it sold 50 million copies is what I read and, you know, translated in so many languages. So in a lot of ways, I felt like it was timeless and I thought it was very clever. I have a lot of the same complaints about Christian fiction and Christian movies that other people have, but I, I think that what he was doing 
1896, is that correct? Um, and yeah, I can't remember the exact yeah, year, but it ended in the 1800s. It was yeah. new, a new, relatively new idea at the time to take propositions that you want to teach people and, and put them into a story form. You know, it's almost like what Lee Strobel did with Case for Christ, only, you know, decades sooner, where you, you blend the two together and say, these are the principles I'm trying to teach you, but this is what it could look like in people's lives. And I, I loved that part about it. And I could see why it would draw people in, especially if they were used to a very, um, you know, kind of dry, but is didactic kind of preaching to have somebody, you know, tell stories in this way. Cause I understand he initially presented this as a sermon series from the pulpit, which was very clever because everybody has to, you've got to come back every week to hear the next installment. It was basically a serial, you know, from the pulpit. And I said, so I thought that was clever. And I love what Bruce was saying about the <clears throat> non-judgmental accountability. I think that was really interesting that they were all going to follow the same principles and they were going to hold each other accountable to follow the principles, but there was room for um, individual conscience and how it would apply. Um, yeah, I, I loved it. <laughs> I, I think interesting. it's interesting coming from a, a Christian podcaster and I ha having made Christian films and also written Christian novels to be in that genre and, and have everybody uh, to know it's, it's kind of a, a hated genre. <laughs> Mm. You know, it's, it's easy to bash. It's much harder when you've done it. Um, yes. Because I think one of the tough yeah. things Charles Sheldon had to face is writing a, a book that is going to be popular for the masses yes. versus one that's going to be popular for a certain niche or group. And, and that's tough by, by having the sort of simplistic language, simplistic characters and things, it kind of opens it up to a larger audience um, in a lot of ways. <laughs> so it's, it's hard for me to criticize that. And also, of course, it is somewhat dated, you know, being that it's over a hundred years old, but I, I can see why he would have done what he did, especially, you know, being that he was not a professional writer by trade. He was, he was a, a minister at this point. Um, and in some ways it reminded me of Andy Weir who wrote um, The Martian, Martian? Uh, and wrote a very sort of stripped down version of, of a story. He like barely describes his characters, barely describes the settings, uh, but tells a fantastic story. And in that way, kind of strips out all the filigree. And um, I'm not going to say that he's as good, like Charles Sheldon is as good a writer as Andy Weir is, but uh, they, they, they kind of reminded me of each other uh, because of that sort of simplicity and mass market appeal. Where have you seen WWJD in your life? Because I know I grew up listening to fundamentalist radio, but um, my church was not a fundamentalist church. And we would go to conferences and we saw it on t-shirts and on bracelets and things. How have you seen it throughout your life? I mean, I've seen it on bracelets and t-shirts and bumper stickers. Mm -hmm. I mean, just it's everywhere. I'm trying to think of some of the plays I've seen done on it. that was fairly mm -hmm. humorous too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Because what was interesting to me, this, this book is sort of in story form, it is the social gospel, which was a liberal form of theology, which we'll get into here. And also there'll be more episodes about, but I was going to conferences that were much more conservative and seeing WWJD there, mm -hmm. um, kind of interesting to me in researching yep. this, that the attitude towards that phrase was, was totally fine when I was a kid in the eighties and nineties. 
uh, it was everybody was fine with it. And it, I never knew that this was part of a sort of a, a more liberal movement uh, until I started researching for this season. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Why was that, that catchphrase everywhere? Uh, but it, I think it's, it's easy to read it and not even notice that this would be a liberal theology. Is that what you all took away? Yeah, I think so. I, I didn't grow up in church. But my my church, my my Christian life and history is that of a pretty conservative uh, background. And I was raising kids when the WWJD thing was going on, you know, and stuff. And um, I what I thought was interesting was that once they said, what would Jesus do in every department of your life and all your decisions during the day? What would Jesus do? that it didn't take them long to realize that their decisions were going to impact other people. And if it wasn't that in the immediate, it became that eventually. That wasn't the way I saw it in the 80s and 90s being played out. WWJD got repurposed for individualistic Christianity. Right. Right. And I don't think that's what was really ha- in my in, in my interpretation and observation from where I sat in a very conservative construct. That I, I think that that that's not what was happening. The one thing that I think was different about this, as opposed to those of us who you know grew up in you know maybe a conservative evangelical all the way to mm-hmm. fundamentalist background was the holiness movement that a lot of us experienced to some degree or another was about personal holiness. Mm -hmm. And so that really, I think, lends itself to the, I am more a a better religious person than you are. But in this context, all of the decisions were being made based on how they perceived that it was going to affect society and how, you know, what is, what is the prize fighting, which, you know, I, I think I imagine would look a whole lot different than what we would see as, you know, a, a boxing match today and what was going on surrounding it. And, you know, the saloon and what that represented, everything was being decided, not like, I don't drink, I don't smoke. I don't, you know, I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. And, you know, I don't go to <laughs> movies and I don't do this matter that it was all about how, do, what are the impact of my actions upon society. And so I think that might guard it some against, you know, that I'm holier than you. Uh, One of the other critiques that goes along with this book is that uh, they rarely ever talk about scripture to say, okay, what did Jesus do in a similar situation? It was usually, you know, like I I might pray about it, um, but that's about all. I'm not going to consult scripture. So it's one of the critiques that people have about this book. They rarely look to see what Jesus did, uh, but ask themselves, what would Jesus do in my situation? Um, which is kind of an interesting thing. I would have liked to have seen maybe that play out a little bit more. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, there, there was rarely any disagreement when somebody landed on something, at least from somebody who had also taken the pledge. When, as uh, Rachel mentioned, there was a reason I did the holiness episode right before this. <laughs> Uh, because you see that holiness movement, there there really was in the late 1800s, early 1900s, this emphasis on personal holiness and, and trying to see, can I live a holier life? And that had a lot of really strange different branches that came off of it. But it's a really, I mean, a good impulse when you mm-hmm. read scripture to, to try to live a holier life. With that in mind, how do you see the social gospel inside of this book? Because it's supposed to, this book kind of represents 
that movement? How do you see the social gospel as we've talked about it so far this season? So, so in a sense, he was emphasize, the book does emphasize social action, maybe more so than evangelism, but there is evangelism taking place. There's, you know, revival meetings are, a, you know, these evangelistic tent meetings are a backdrop of the story. And can, it's I, presumed- can I play devil's advocate really quick? Oh, yeah. Did you ever hear them actually say the gospel in the tent? You know, no, and, 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 it, and it's hard to know if, if people were so Christianized that a lot of this was presumed, right? That everybody had read the gospels, knew the life of Christ, knew this stuff. Um, but it felt like to me, they were still being called to respond. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that it was, in, it, it was one to the exclusion of the other. Yeah. I, I think what I, the limited knowledge that I have, Chris, is that this split <clears throat> happened later. So if that we may be reading back into this story, the idea of a split between evangelism and social action, because this is something that took place, you know, decades, at least a few decades later. This, the main split, uh, we'll get into this in a future episode that comes out after this was just before World War One, uh, and into right. World War One as well. Um, so it was just coming up into that. Um, but there, I was really careful as I was reading it that I was looking for any kind of actual evangelism because one of the hallmarks of the social gospel is that it generally uh, lifts up social action and downplays evangelism. And you do see people sort of come to God, but you never see how they do that. If there's a process, any of that kind of stuff, um, or are they just sort of committing to this? What would Jesus do? We don't really know. And I, I think as, as a content creator myself, having made movies and books and stuff like that, there's always this big discussion of how clear do I have to make the gospel for this to be a Christian project or for people to understand what I'm talking about. So if you see, go on YouTube and find my film Between the Walls, skip to the end, and they have the longest gospel conversation you can imagine. <laughs> because I, as like a 22-year-old who, mm-hmm. writing this script, I was like really afraid I was going to miss a point. And then when you get to our second film, between uh, Bringing Out Bobby, uh, we condense that a whole lot uh, because we were like, we don't have to cover every single point. Uh, but it, it gets into a big discussion of how much do you have to have the gospel in there? Um, and also what were, what were Charles Sheldon's, what were his motivations in not having a step-by-step, this is how you come to Jesus moment. But one of the reasons that this book is so present in social gospel conversations about the history of that is that it, there isn't really a come to Jesus prescription within it, how you do it. Um, and, and, but at the same time, you have that social action thing. So when it gets to future episodes, we'll talk about Walter Rauschenbusch, who was the main thinker of the social gospel and wrote a, a very popular book about it that I go through in the episode. He, he's very clear that righteous living is all that God demands. That's a paraphrase of what he says. Um, it, it isn't about a coming to Jesus moment or a relationship with God necessarily. It is doing great works socially and uh, not about individual transformation, but about social transformation. 
And that would at least become the social gospel. And of course, there were a lot of different flavors of social gospel. So it's hard to put these things in a box. Um, but one of the things you see in, in, in his steps is, is people concerned about society and how their actions impact society, but not necessarily about sin, unless it comes to things that are like vices that could hurt somebody like alcohol. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's a very helpful book, I think, uh, for Christians, very convicting, regardless of what your stances are, what your beliefs are. Uh, but it does get into some sticky territory because it does not really talk about the relationship between a person and God. Do you think it makes a difference that this was initially a sermon series presented by a minister? So maybe, maybe. He's approaching is okay. You have all you understand the gospel. You've made a decision, but I don't see it affecting you know your life. So I'm trying to you know take you guys to the next level. I'm trying to challenge you. Possibly, yeah. So, but that that of course is <laughs> I, I don't know. I wasn't there, right. but uh, and I haven't read anything that says either way. Um, but that is what the social gospel would sort of become would be to downplay yeah. evangelism and to yeah. lift up things like even like Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, when he's writing, eventually leads to socialism. He's, he's a socialist and starts to kind of push that. And he's one of the guys that ties liberal theology and socialism together. Um, and, and so then there's this big pushback right before World War I and into World War I to say, if those guys, liberal theology is all about helping people, then we in conservative theology don't want to be associated with that. So we're going to pull back from our social engagement, at least in public, um, yeah. in, a, in a move that's called the Great Reversal, which there will be an episode about. <laughs> that's going to be good. Yeah. Bruce? Uh, so when I was young and growing and the first times I heard the term social gospel reference, it was a negative term. And then, and now, and now, you know, over the past years and years, I think, well, what, so why was, why was, and still is this, this thing they call the social gospel, uh, anathema. Why is it the enemy? Why is it, you know, demonized you in this day and age in this context it's like well you know these social justice warriors and i go what isn't that actually what god is into mm -hmm. yeah. and, if, and if we think there's a problem somehow with social justice for instance that, that for some reason there's something going on that's wrong with it then shouldn't the christian community be the first people to concern themselves with riding the boat. Yeah. I think in some ways we're all looking for a litmus test to understand very quickly yeah. where somebody else is. So it's like, if they say this buzzword, I can put them into this bucket. Mm -hmm. um, and, yes. Yeah. And, it's, and yes. sometimes that that's one of those things. It's like a, a natural human thing. We, we, we have to put people into buckets so we understand how to deal with them. Um, yeah. But partially it's also this thing of almost like gang warfare, where mm -hmm. if my, if the other gang wears blue and that's their color, I can't wear a blue because that signals that I'm with them and I'm not with them. Mm -hmm. So what happens coming up into the, you know, the mid uh, 19 teens, religious conservatives saw 
what was going on in uh, social with the social gospel and said, I don't want to be associated with them because they're leading people away in seminaries and in big popular churches and in popular books and stuff like that. So to keep my people from being poisoned by this thing, we need to create a separate environment. And so some of it is self-preservation, but unfortunately it, it morphs into this thing where suddenly you're right. You, you know, we, we have these buzzwords that we can just bash somebody. Oh, they're a social warrior. And now I don't have to pay attention to them or their cause or any of those other things. But yeah, you, you can see that, that this is kind of where it started. And then there are guys like Walter Rauschenbusch again, who we'll get to, who literally did literally tie did. this stuff right. to socialism. Yeah. And then coming up into you know 1917 with the Russian revolution, that was a real threat. <laughs> so part of the problem was they had these gigantic credible threats, real threats. So they were trying to create a sort of a shortcut language so that they could identify what was a threat and what wasn't. And I think we all do that. But unfortunately, like the the problem is that we are commanded as Christians to do the, the whole of the law is encapsulated in love the Lord and love your neighbor. But we're generally, like I've said in the season, very good at one or the other, but terrible at both. <laughs> That's one of the goals of the season. I'll keep bringing that idea up because we, we often... Like I had some conversations with some folks on a trail I was hiking recently, and they were talking about um, their theologically liberal friends who basically disregard large chunks of the Bible because it disagrees with their lifestyle. And I was like, well, but God tells us that if we love him, we will obey his commands. And that's that's the loving God part. But they they were very focused on, my friends were very focused on loving your neighbor. And that the hard part is we have to marry those two things. We have to be able to say, I need to obey God and love my neighbor. But we, we tend to focus on one or the other, unfortunately. Okay, time for a little bit of a break. We'll be right back. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back. We continued the conversation with an observation by Dwayne, essentially that he thought the book was patronizing in that it was full of rich people telling poor people at the rectangle what to do. His audio was pretty rough, so we'll skip to our responses. I I was really struck by that as well, because uh, even in some of the writings about the book that I've read, uh, they talk about this book as appealing to the middle class, and yet there's really not much in the way of middle-class representation in the book. It's basically very wealthy people or the very, very poor people. And the very poor people aren't main characters. Uh, it's it's ma- mostly what can the ultra-wealthy do to help the very poor, uh, which is an angle. I mean, it's not, you know, not saying you can't do that in a book. 
back yeah. to Andy's reference of the Gilded Age, there really wasn't much middle class then, right? And that was right. part of the problem was these huge divisions in society. And it's interesting with the the alcohol stuff, because this, this was a big era of social change and social involvement um, where Christians were on the forefront. I've had some, some episodes of truce about how Christians were on the forefront of prohibition and also women's rights, which went hand in hand in that era. What were some of the the social movements that these guys started, uh, what were some of the things that you noticed, other things, other movements that were going on other than just the prohibition movement? Union labor. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It wasn't talked about a lot, but it was there. Mm -hmm. It was mentioned a few times, Mm -hmm. even just in passing, just like just a passing comment, like so-and-so had just come from some meeting where they were talking about these uh, laborers that were striking. Okay. I, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I agree with the uh, union thing. I saw that and the uh, uh, trying to get on the, the city council or city board, whatever that was. They're like, you know, we, we as Christians need to take this seriously and our actions need to have impact, um, not, not just in our own lives, like we talked about earlier, but in society as well. We need to make make this a better world and, you know, being involved in the decision-making on the city council would be helpful for that. And yeah, taking care of, um, you know, people's needs, workers' needs that, uh, that would definitely help. So you definitely saw that, that aspect of it. I, I agree. Uh, what about the pure food movement? Did anybody see that? Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that was what stood out to me, Chris, because I had just previous to this finished listening to an audio, audio book called The Secret History of Home Economics which is actually a way more interesting book than it sounds like. And um, that it totally tied in and um, because there was a brand new discipline that had been founded in the late 1800s, which was originally called domestic science. And that just feeds right into what Felicia is doing. And again, people think of like home economics as being kind of this conservative, you know, keep women in their place. But like so many things, it was actually domestic science was part of the progressive movement applying this new knowledge to women's lives and, and to make the homes, you know, safer and empower people. And um, it was started by a woman named Ellen Swallow Richards, who was the first woman to graduate with a chemistry degree from MIT. And she's the mother of domestic science. And so what Felicia is talking about doing there at the settlement house is brand new cutting edge stuff, talking about pure food and, you know, nutrition demonstrations and and I don't know if we're going to get into the part about women's roles, but <laughs> we probably should. Yeah. But I, I, I like the pure food movement this, thing. Yeah. They barely touch on it in the book, but um, this was an era where you could expect if you're getting bread, there might be things like um, sawdust in there, yep. or there might formaldehyde in your milk. Uh, so yep. as much as we make fun of, and this, maybe this was in the book, Rachel, uh, as much as we make fun of white bread, in this country and like wonder bread wonder bread was kind of a, a revelation in its time because it was guaranteed not to have any of that stuff in there and it was white so you could see any kind of stuff that was hidden inside of it um, so it's not healthy bread we all know that now right. it's not great for you but at least it didn't have sawdust in it and you and see that was, yeah that was how domestic science was born ellen mm-hmm. swallow richards again the first woman to to study chemistry at mit would take this 
these foods and analyze them. And she would find, you know, ground up mahogany inside cinnamon and just all kinds of adulterants. And there was no FDA, there was no regulation of any of this. And she would study water and she would study harmful things on the back of wallpaper. And, you know, it was all about bringing um, safety to the home and empowering women and teaching them, you know, how to protect their families. And it, it was about em- women's empowerment. <laughs> yeah. It's a fascinating movement. Uh, yeah. I, I kind of wish yeah. they'd spend more time on it. the book. It would have been a total yeah. distraction, yeah. but it's a fascinating uh, moment, but uh, to mm-hmm. curve background to what Rachel was saying, what, what, how do you think women were portrayed in the book? And do you think maybe it would have been received differently then in the 1800s than it is now? Because I know there were some comments uh, some of the people who listened to the book for me, I had uh, three volunteers listen to it before I released it so we could look for any kind of mistakes I may have made. And some of them said, oh, you should buffer this with a little bit of a warning that women are not three-dimensional characters in this book. And I was like, you know, I think I kind of want people to go into it blind and and just let it wash over them. So what, what did you think? How were women portrayed in the book? So Chris, I love the way that, we, that the women oh, great. portrayed yeah. in the book. Um, and again, putting it in its 1896 context, like you said, this is a Victorian era novel. These are high society, privileged, gilded age women living, you know, a very sheltered Victorian lifestyle where they are expected to fulfill their obligations to society and do what their parents want. And repeatedly, the book portrays young unmarried females making their own decisions, going against class expectations and doing what they feel is right, even if it's going to upset everyone around them. And again, you know, because of that tie in with domestic science, which I've been learning about, I loved that part where Felicia goes to the minister and the bishop and says, I want to, you know, start these programs at the settlement house. And they basically say, you know, we don't know anything about it and we don't know if it's going to work, but if you think you're supposed to do it, then we'll support you. And I think for the context, that was very powerful to have these two important, you know, middle-aged men, religious authorities speak to a young unmarried female and say, you lead, you do it. If you want to do it, we'll support it. And I think the sentence that I wrote down was that about the book was young women's independent action was characterized as Christian discipleship. Not that they were being rebellious, not that they were being, you know, unfeminine, not that they were, you know, were being manly or inappropriate, or it was characterized as Christian discipleship. And for the context, what he, I felt like he was portraying was women's liberation. But it's not just liberation from societal expectations. It was liberation to something. They were liberated to follow Christ according to their own conscience. And this minister is willing to support them if they are seeking to follow Christ. And I just love that. And I thought for a a book written in 1896, that was revolutionary. And it had to be a powerful message for there had to be young women who read that and thought, okay, I, I'm going to, I can follow Christ. Do you think this book is pre-millennialist or post-millennialist or none of the above? Since I've spent so much time in the, this season talking about pre-millennialism. Definitely post-millennialist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what makes you say that? 
because they're anticipating an up, upward t- trajectory that sadly we know wasn't going to happen. You know, they're probably soon after this is the founding of the magazine Christian Century, which we now think of as a mainline liberal magazine, but that was named that because they believed that the 20th century would be the Christian century. And then, you know, and I know you'll tell, we'll learn more about, you know, that World War One and, um, you know, seeing the horrors of humanity. So yeah, they, they definitely thought that there was going to be an upward t- trajectory, which in that way, it's, it's a little bit there's some sadness that you feel there because they because we know that there is going to be a lot of progress in terms of making you know a more just society, but also that it's not necessarily headed in the steady upward arc that they're believing for. But I also think about how Mother Teresa famously said, "We are not called to be successful; we are called to be faithful." And I think that was another theme that comes up in the book is that it doesn't matter if the newspaper is making less money or whatever. We're called to be faithful. So um, we're supposed to have, you know, an even irrational optimism and hope no matter what's going on around us, because that's what it means to follow Christ. Yeah. I have to do the right thing, even if it's not going to change anything. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really hard to do. <laughs> what do you think? Is this a book you would recommend other people? Is this one you're glad you read? What What are your thoughts? I noticed that Rachel gave thumbs up on an audio medium. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I guess I better say what that is. Um, and, you know, it probably depends on what kind of literature a person likes. You know, if, if you're fascinated with a certain type of, of um, literature, if, if you would choose, like I would, to, to listen to other, you know, Victorian literature or whatever, like Andy said there, you know, it's not necessarily um, a a setting or a style that's going to appeal to everybody, Um, but I would recommend it. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I, you know, it carried me along and (laughs) and was inspiring. And I would probably not recommend it. I would recommend some other authors that cover um, some of the same themes, Mm -hmm. just Maybe not as heavy-handedly. See, I actually have recommended this book to other folks. Partially, it is because it is so easy to get the theme of the book. Um, You don't have to dig very far. It's kind of right there on the surface. I found it very convicting. And there's actually another book I'm considering ending the season with as like a bonus at the end um, that is also a little heavy-handed, but I think sometimes we need that. We need something that's very clear. Again, I, I my... Andy and I have gone back and forth on some things about journalism. <laughs> you'll you'll hear it in some of the episodes we have. I can say it again if things. you want. You can, uh, <laughs> but where he, you know, he's been sort of not not excited about the world of journalism, and um, I I've been trying to say like Andy, be, before you can really comment on the world of journalism, you need to go report any story, <laughs> and then come back and tell me what you've learned. And part of that with Christian media, and it's it's it, maybe it's me deflecting, but I, I always want to tell people, you should really consider writing a Christian story or writing a, a, a movie or a book or something like that and see what it's, how hard it is to try to get a point across in any medium without being heavy handed. Cause it's actually really difficult. I mean, if you look at just about any popular movie, they generally have no message to them, you know, like mm-hmm. at least no overt message and yes. any, any kind of 
if you see a movie that say wants to try to encourage you to take care of the environment, inevitably people will walk away saying it was heavy handed, regardless of what movie it is, anytime there's a message. So you're kind of already fighting an uphill battle and making it a Christian project because you're trying to convey something about God to them. But in order to do that, you have to kind of verbalize those things because also the audiences are not particularly great at picking things up. I've noticed over the years. So like I've said uh, previously uh, on my second film, Bringing Out Bobby, the, the parents were dead the whole movie, but after screenings, <laughs> audience members would come up to us and say, it was so sad when the parents died in that car crash. There is no car crash in that movie. <laughs> I don't know where they got that from, but people just pick stuff up and miss the point altogether. So I, I want to stand up and defend the heavy hand every now and then and think, I think it's okay every now and then, but it does mean it's probably not as sort of highbrow as, as something that would be more subtle. Hey, this is Chris in narration mode again. That's something worth exploring when it comes to the social gospel. Because I said a few times here that the social gospel downplayed evangelism. That isn't totally accurate. It's a different understanding of the purpose of Christianity altogether. Whereas people like D.L. Moody would argue that Christianity is about saving souls through faith in Jesus, the social gospel put forth the idea that Christianity is about making our world better. You know, you wouldn't be too off by oversimplifying it to say that it's a battle between grace and works. Now, I don't think I've done a good job of explaining that yet this season. The social gospel wasn't a threat because it advocated for good works, but because it often ditched salvation altogether. The social gospel created a belief system that talked a lot about Jesus, but required no faith in him. It's the gospel minus salvation. That's why it's a big deal that In His Steps doesn't feature a gospel message, and why it so well articulates the message of the social gospel. Is Christianity a faith of doing nice things, or is it about a relationship with Jesus? For some reason, we struggle to do both. It doesn't make any sense to me, but we humans always want to prioritize things, and the idea of keeping those two things in tension seems to be a lot for many of us. We either want to get our hands dirty or surrender to Jesus, when we're supposed to do all of it. We like to knock media with an overt Christian message, but then we get into the sticky world of In His Steps. Is it Christian if it doesn't advocate a relationship with Jesus? Maybe that's the topic for another Patreon discussion. But for now, that's it for this edited version of our chat. Hopefully you can see why I wanted to read this book on the feed. It's both convicting and a little controversial. Subscribe to the podcast so you get every new episode as it's released. Also, there is a reason this was for patrons only. I have two full-time jobs, like really, two jobs. This podcast and the job I do in order to pay for the show, which is a ton of work. 11 hour days, often six days a week. I could do way more creative stuff and maybe learn how to sleep well at night if I did this show full time. And you can make that happen. Become a patron of the show, like the people you heard from today. 
You'll gain access to bonus materials and, more importantly, you'll keep good content like this coming for everyone to hear. You can learn how to help at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Only about 2% of the people who listen to Truce ever help out. My goal by the end of the year is to get that to 4%. Just 4% of people who listen. This show is not funded by a company or a grant or a church or a wealthy investor. It's just me doing work between shifts at my full-time job as a school bus driver. So let's send a message that interesting, professional, well-produced Christian media is possible by funding this show in full. Again, that's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. You can also send checks or do PayPal through my website or Venmo me at at trucepodcast. Thanks to Dwayne, Andy, Rachel, and Bruce for joining the discussion and to my brother Nick Starin for helping me suss all this out. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. God willing, we'll be back in two weeks with more. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu slash hdl.